This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Impeachment. Is it truly Michigan's thermonuclear option? Would impeaching Gretchen Whitmer really accomplish anything? And the answer is, I've got to say, almost certainly not, because impeachment in and of itself does not really matter if conviction does not follow. No U.S. president or governor of Michigan has ever been removed from office involuntarily. But that hasn't deterred State Representative Bo LaFave, who's been a guest on this program, he's a Republican from Iron Mountain, from introducing House Resolution 324, which calls for impeaching Governor Gretchen Whitmer for, quote, corrupt conduct in office and crimes and misdemeanors, unquote. This measure, co-sponsored by State Representatives Matt Maddock, a Republican of Milford, who was a guest on our program a week ago, and Dare Rendon, a Republican of Lake City, requires a simple majority vote of the state House of Representatives to pass and be sent to the state Senate for a trial. Conviction and removal of Whitmer from office would require a two-thirds Senate majority, which will never happen because the 22 Republicans who control the chamber would need four Democratic votes to reach the 26-vote threshold. Democrats have Whitmer's back no matter what and will never allow this to happen. In fact, a case could be made that impeachment is not really much more significant than censure, in which an official can be admonished by his or her peers but still remain in office. Impeachment is more like a grand jury indictment, which does not always result in conviction. Most students know from their high school civics classes and from very recent history that only three U.S. presidents have ever been impeached by the United States House of Representatives, and they were Andrew Johnson, way back in 1868, right after the Civil War. William Jefferson Clinton in 1998. We all remember Monica Lewinsky. And just this year, Donald J. Trump. However, in the U.S. Senate, where, as in Michigan, a two-thirds vote is required to convict, none of these presidents was removed from office. Impeachment hasn't been any more effective in Michigan either. No governor has ever been an impeachment target in Michigan. Michigan has had four state constitutions. The first one back in 1835, another in 1850, another in 1908, and the current one, which was approved by voters in 1963. Each of these constitutions had provisions for impeachment of state officers similar to the impeachment provisions in the U.S. Constitution, yet in the entire history of the state of Michigan, only two state officers, one of them a judge, has ever been impeached by the Michigan House of Representatives, and only the judge was convicted. Now, here's the story. 
One of those impeached was a state land commissioner, it was called. It was an elected office back in the 19th century. And in 1871, charges were brought against Charles A. Edmonds, E-D-M-O-N-D-S, a Republican from Coldwater who was the elected state land commissioner. The petition alleged that Edmonds and his office clerks were engaged in drinking, carousing, and visiting places of ill repute, among other more serious charges. On March 28th of 1871, the impeachment motion was passed overwhelmingly, 79 to 5, in the 100-member chamber. Three House managers were then appointed to try the impeachment charges against Edmonds in the state Senate. Here's another wrinkle. The 1850 Michigan Constitution, under which the legislature was operating at the time, provided that no impeachment trial in the Senate could commence until the final adjournment of the legislature. As a result, the impeachment trial of Charles Edmonds did not begin until April 11th, after the legislature had adjourned sine die. They did that in the spring back in those days. The trial lasted until May 22nd, roughly just over a month, five weeks, at which time the Senate voted on all 11 articles of impeachment, and Edmonds, believe it or not, was acquitted of all charges on some charges, Only one senator voted guilty. Some charges were unanimous in Edmonds' favor to acquit. However, on three charges, a majority of senators found him guilty, but not by the two-thirds vote required to convict and remove him from office. For the curious student of history, the vote on the drunkenness charge was a unanimous not guilty. On the adultery charge, there was only one guilty vote. So Edmund survived, but only for the duration of his two-year term. Beginning in 1873, there was a new state land commissioner. Politically, Edmonds was never heard from again. Now, was impeachment of Edmonds the end of things? No. Nearly three-quarters of a century later, in 1943, in the middle of the Second World War, a Gugebic County probate judge named Michael E. Nolan was impeached by the House for padding his expense account by charging excessive fees for marriage license. 722 secret marriages were performed in Gugebic County between 1938 and 1942. Judge Nolan was convicted by the Senate and removed from office in 1943, the only time in Michigan history this ever happened. Now, Michigan does provide other options for removing public officials besides impeachment. One of them, obviously, is defeat for re-election. At the local level, incumbents are often defeated. Back in 2016, for instance, four years ago in the primary Four of the nine Genesee County commissioners were ousted at the polls. In Emmett County, up by the Straits of Mackinac, all incumbent county commissioners lost. Same thing happened in various local jurisdictions this year. 
such as three incumbents on the Traverse City Area Public Schools Board. But defeating incumbent office holders at the state and federal levels in Michigan is difficult, if not impossible. The last incumbent federal and statewide elected officials to suffer defeat at the ballot box in Michigan were Jim Blanchard for governor in 1990, Richard Austin for secretary of state in 1994, Spencer Abraham for U.S. Senator in 2000, State Supreme Court Justices Clifford Taylor in 2008, Alton Davis in 2010, and Curtis Wilder in 2018, and a handful of congressmen. Now, is there any other way to get officials out of office? Yes, but it's hard not to notice that they hardly ever happen. One way is recall. In fact, Michigan and Oregon were the first two states to provide for recall of elected public officials beginning in 1908. Today, 17 other states also provide for recall of state officials. Another way is expulsion, but only four representatives have ever been expelled from the House of Representatives. And by the way, recall, only three public officials have ever been recalled, all legislators and none of them governors. So when we look at taking action against Whitmer, the resolution to impeach will die at the end of next month by the end of the session. It will have to be reintroduced next year. Will it be reintroduced? Will it become an issue and a controversy? Wait and see. In the meantime, we are going to bring you more exciting news. Stay tuned with our first guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have a guest who's been on before with very interesting material to discuss. Rob Ritchie is the president and CEO of Fair Vote, which I believe is headquartered in Maryland. Rob Ritchie, thanks for being our guest. Thank you, Bill. Great to be on the program. Well, let me ask you to explain to our listeners exactly what Fair Vote is and the ranked choice voting system that you espouse. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, uh, Fair Vote's been around since 1992. I actually helped start it with John Anderson, who had been a uh, congressman and presidential candidate way back in 1980 and had been an independent candidate and sort of and had a belief that there was value in having more than more than two candidates be able to run and, and put their hat forward, and uh, yet we have a way of electing people that makes that challenging because uh, we have a really system that's built for two, works just great when you have only two choices, but as soon as you add more than two, uh, the system can have problems. And we, we're a nonpartisan group. We work with people across the spectrum, but have been advancing as a central goal this notion of the ranked choice ballot, and have really been making some headway. We'll, we'll touch base on that. But the, the idea of the ranked choice ballot is to say, okay, well, in, when you have more than two, Let's give you a chance to say more about the candidates than just a single choice. Because if you just vote for one and you add up all the votes, the candidate with the most votes might have only, say, 40 percent or 35 percent or whatever the number might be and might actually not be the most representative candidate, the one that would have won in kind of a head-to-head contest. And so the idea of a ranked choice system is to, is to, to create that you know, head-to-head comparison without two trips to the polls. You just do it once. And so you as a voter go in and say, well, my first choice is so-and-so, 
Um, but, I'm, but I do have a preference about who my second choice is. That matters to me, too. That's my compromise choice, and I'd like that candidate to beat my last choice. And so that's my second choice. Um, and so you add up all the first choices, and if you get a first-round majority, if a candidate gets over 50, you're done. It's just a typical election. If not, and no one has 50 percent, then the candidate who is in last place, the weakest candidate in the field, gets knocked out. Those ballots are counted for those voters' next choice, their kind of backup choice. And if you get a 50 percent winner, then, then you're done. If it's, say, a candidate with, you know, a race with five or six candidates, you might need to kind of keep knocking that last person out. But eventually you get down to a point where it's head-to-head and the person with the most votes wins, and that candidate will have more than half of the votes in that final round. So you're getting so, – so it's called an instant runoff because it's kind of duplicating the idea of a runoff but doing it in just one, one trip for the voters to the polls. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now, uh, how many jurisdictions in the country, I mean, state, local government, you name it, uh, have ranked choice in place right now? It's been a really exciting for us. You know, 20 years ago, that, that answer would have been one. Um, we're now up to uh, probably within three, four months, we'll find out how many Utah cities are about to do it. But several are debating it for, for their next elections. But it's already about 26 after this year's elections, where five new jurisdictions just voted to, to pass it. And, um, and it keeps rising. And we actually have two states, Alaska and its companion way over on the east, Maine, uh, are, are now using it for their presidential elections. And um, we're, we're, we're seeing, elections you know, one of the breakthroughs was with, for us was both the notion of it getting kind of understood, but really more structurally, it was just the voting equipment. We had voting equipment that didn't, didn't make it easy to do, and we don't have a very easy regime for voting equipment to kind of add in a new dimension. And so that, but that's being done. So now I think it's going to be a lot easier for more states and, and counties and cities to decide to use it. Maine used it also for a congressional election. I think two years ago you knocked off an incumbent, didn't you, in northern Maine um, because of ranked choice? Yep, it was a very interesting election. Uh, in the first round, no candidate got more than 46 percent. Um, so they were, you know, they were short of 50 percent. And uh, the incumbent had 46, second place candidate 45 with the independent voters, uh, they, there were two, two candidates who were independents. They had almost 10 percent. When you, when you added their second choices into the mix and it became head-to-head, then the candidate in second ended up winning 51-49. So it was kind of that instant runoff concept, and it did change the outcome. There was a referendum, wasn't there, in Massachusetts this year on whether to institute ranked choice there? But I think it got defeated, didn't it? It did. If that was the only defeat for the year of, of, of for ranked choice voting. It was actually on the ballot in a total of eight jurisdictions this year, and it won seven, but it did lose in the single biggest one, which was Massachusetts. But I think it, you know it is a new enough idea. It got forty-five percent. Um, you know that's not too far from the fifty-one percent that Alaska got that that won. But you know, fifty-five percent doesn't win anything. But it it. it uh, it shows it's you know people are still learning about it. Um, I think a big state like that, um, you know, a lot of voters hadn't really heard much about it, and um, we just have to we just have more more work to do because I think it does make sense to people, but they do have to put it into a context that kind of hits home. And I think some states have had more elections where there's been some division over a third or you know a lot of discussion about about you know, split votes and third parties and so on. And those states seem to be more ready to do it. Though here's what I expect. I think more legislators themselves are going to start seeing as a, as a solution to problems that they're dealing with. Um, one really interesting use this year was four of the uh, states where the Democratic Party runs their presidential primary, kind of caucus states, but they were effectively primaries, 
use ranked choice voting because there were so many Democrats running for the presidential nomination that it made sense, they thought, to kind of add in a ranked choice dimension to it. And um, it worked quite well. Um, I think both parties are looking forward, can look at a lot of crowded presidential primaries in their future. And I would expect both Democrats and Republicans alike are going to use a lot more uh, ranked choice voting uh, ballots in, in, in those kinds of races. Doesn't East Point, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit in a way up in, I think, the edge of Macomb County, have ranked choice in place for their municipal election? It does. It uh, started with um, out of a voting rights case. So they use a certain kind of, propor- of, of ranked choice voting. It's a, it's a form of proportional voting that, that can allow more, more voters to help elect a candidate. And there was a voting rights case in, in East Point brought by the Department of Justice and they settled it with this proportional form of ranked choice voting where uh, each seat can be won with less than 50% when you're electing, say, two or three of them. Um, and it's, there's a whole sort of history of that, that system being used. It's a, a fascinating one that we, we think is a good idea. This year, there was a special election. There was a city council seat that went open. And so they used ranked choice voting to fill the seat in the way I described it earlier in the show because um, you need 50% to win when it's just one, one, one candidate. And there were three candidates. Uh, no, no candidate got uh, you know, 50% of the first round. Um, and the candidate who did lead in first choices did end up winning that one. Uh, but at least she didn't have to go to a runoff, right? She didn't have to go to like a, a holiday season runoff. She, they, they filled the seat just right from the get-go with, with ranked choice voting. Last question. Uh, we've got these two special elections runoffs. Uh, for the U.S. Senate in Georgia on January 5th. Wouldn't it be nice if we already knew the result uh, as of uh, November 3rd, which we would have with ranked choice voting, we would know whether David Perdue or Kelly Leffler, the two incumbent Republicans, had won, had been reelected, or whether they had been knocked off by their two Democratic challengers or maybe a split verdict. And that's maybe could be a factor going forward, right? Absolutely. No, it's, it's, you know, here, here we are. It's going to be a two-month season. There's, there's one happy camper there, which is all the, the, the broadcasters who are airing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of TV ads. But, you know, like the, the Purdue race, he was up. He had over 49% of the vote. He was short of 50. Um, and so, but now he has two months more of, of campaigning. There'll be a yeah. lower turnout election. It's super nasty. Yeah. And yes, we think Rachel's voting would have been a very good alternative to yeah, that. Now, listen, I'd love to keep talking about this, particularly the Georgia races, but we are out of time because Rob Ritchie has given us so many things to think about. Thank you, Rob Ritchie, for being our guest. Thanks so much, Bill. We'll do it again. Thank you. And I will be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back and we have a very special guest. He is Representative-elect Andrew Fink of the 58th House District. He has not yet taken his seat in the Michigan House of Representatives he will not until January, but he was the victor this year in a primary on the Republican side and in the general election. And he represents a very neat, compact district. Branch and Hillsdale counties, the two counties combined, all of them, uh, all townships, all cities, uh, no parts of or anything. The 58th House District. Welcome to the Political Insider, Representative Andrew Fink. So good to be with you. 
And you are uh, in Hillsdale. I think that's where you live. You've got a law office there. And um, tell me about y- your race, why you decided to run this year, how it went, what you're looking forward to. Yeah, well, it was a busy primary. There were four of us. Uh, you know, what made me want to run is just noticing that the, the national political trends, um, you know, terms like socialism being used uh, positively for the first time in my political memory, uh, I thought those trends were coming to Michigan, and my wife and I have five young kids, and I thought if uh, if I didn't get into the conversation, at least uh, try to improve the situation and make sure that the voice of people like the hardworking families in Branch and Hillsdale counties uh, was heard. If I didn't if I didn't take an opportunity to uh, try to influence things for the good, and things went bad, then I'd uh, I'd regret it forever. So I, I just the, you know the the confluence of there being an open seat at a time when I thought the conversation was taking a, a wrong turn. Uh, made it uh, made it the right choice. Yeah. Now you have already been appointed by the new speaker of the House, the incoming uh, speaker elect Jason Wentworth, who's a Republican from Farwell. You've already been appointed to uh, one of two committees he set up. One is called the Policy Action Plan Committee, and that's the one he, I believe, has put you on uh, along with about half a dozen other state representatives, most of them already members, they're incumbent representatives, but he thought enough of you to put you on, even though, uh, you know, you haven't even taken your seat yet. Uh, so how do you look at that? And was this something you knew about and requested? Uh, and what will the policy action plan committee be responsible for? No, I didn't. I didn't know about it. I didn't have any reason to expect that I'd be on this committee uh, prior to uh, being told by Speaker-elect Jason Wentworth that um, I was going to participate on it. Um, obviously, every it's it would be irresponsible not to have some kind of a policy plan heading into uh, a two-year cycle, you know, two-year uh, legislature. Um, and uh, and so you know, our task is to try to articulate what the what the, the basic policy priorities of the House majority will be during the 101st legislature. So it's, an, it's a great opportunity for me as a freshman. It'd be a great opportunity any time in, in your career to get to participate in, in, you know, taking a few minutes before the uh, the legislature, the, the, the term starts, and, and kind of think think through what we what we think we can accomplish, how we can make the, the lives of Michiganians better. Even though you didn't expect to be appointed to this committee or necessarily even know about it, I mean, do you have some ideas of your own right now about policy initiatives that the House Republicans ought to pursue. I know Jason Wentworth uh, was instrumental in getting auto insurance rate reform passed in 2019. That was a big policy objective of his. And you'd certainly like to have something as important as that on the agenda uh, yourself, whatever it might be, and aim to getting that accomplished uh, going forward, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Rather than... uh um, rather than get ahead of, of, of the committee's work and, and kind of uh, predict now or guess at what, what a, an item that big will be, I'll just say that that kind of, of legislation, which made a difference in the, in the you know, household budgets of hard, hardworking taxpayers, working families, moms and dads who are trying to take care of their, uh, take care of their family, and we were paying the highest auto rates, auto insurance rates in, in the country, that kind of, of policy solution is the kind of thing that we're going to be trying to achieve because, uh, you know, we've, we've got a state of 10 million people who are, um, you know, 
unique in their own ways, but what we have in common is that uh, we're practical and hardworking, and, and that's the kind of policy solution that we're going to be trying to find. Another committee that Speaker-elect Jason Wentworth appointed is called the Committee on Committees, and they're the ones who put together the assignments for all the new members and the incumbent members who might want to stay where they are or maybe want to change committees. Do you have any particular standing committees, issues, or whatever that you might like to be on? For instance, you're a lawyer, and you might want to be on Judiciary Committee, but maybe not. Yeah, obviously, Bill, that's kind of a a popular topic right now in Lansing's what what committees are you trying to get on? And and I think judiciary would be a very good fit for me, Um, uh, you know, as a practicing attorney. But my first job as an attorney was actually in the Marine Corps as a judge advocate. So the the Military Veterans and Homeland Security Committee would also be a very natural fit. Um, I'm interested in health policy. I'm interested in commerce and tourism. Uh, very interested in the Elections and Ethics Committee. So, I mean, there, there are lots of places I'd be uh, very excited to work. And, of course, my, my attitude is whatever committees I'm assigned to, um, you know, I'm, I'll try to make the most of it and, uh, and, and come up with ways to, to make my, my community's voice heard as we, uh, as we discuss what the statewide policies will be. Representative-elect Fink, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, because you're new coming in. Uh, were you raised in Hillsdale County or... Uh, it seems to me I understand you may have come from Washtenaw County. You may have had relatives there uh, yeah. who were active uh, either in the bar or on the bench. Uh, tell us about your background, how old you are, where you went to college. Just give us the whole nine yards here. We want to hear. You got it. Yeah. Well, I'm 35 years old. I was born and raised in Ypsilanti. Um, my my dad was a sheriff's officer when I was young, and he went to law school at night and uh, and retired from the sheriff's department when I was uh, probably eighth grade or something and has been practicing law since then. But before him, his, uh, his, his dad and, and a couple of his brothers were attorneys as well. And my, my grandpa and my uncle Carl were both judges in Washtenaw County. And uh, what, what got me out of Washtenaw County and into the area that I represent now is going to college at Hillsdale. I went uh, to Hillsdale College and studied politics there. And when I graduated from Hillsdale, I worked on Congressman Tim Wahlberg's campaign in 2006, Bill, which uh, I'm sure you'll remember was when Congressman Wahlberg uh, ran a primary campaign against then Congressman Joe Schwartz. Um, after that, I, I went to law school, and uh, during law school, I married my wife, and we started a family, and I joined the Marines uh, over one of, one of my summers, spent a few years on active duty as a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. And uh, since 2014, I've been back home in Michigan in private practice. Uh, and in 2017, we moved back to My wife and I met at Hillsdale College. We moved back to Hillsdale have been raising our five children there. And uh, the only other wrinkle that, that you might be interested in is I spent, uh, I spent most of the year 2019 as uh, Senator Mike Shirky's district director working in the district in Hillsdale Branch in Jackson Counties, um, which sort of gave me a taste for what the constituent relations side of being a legislator would be and, and kind of helped help me think through whether I wanted to jump in, uh, you know, and, and see what difference I could make myself. So that's, uh, that's kind of the 60-year or 90-second biography. That sounds uh, pretty darn fascinating to me. Um, have you had a chance to meet uh, many of the new legislators coming in? I mean, it's so complicated nowadays with the coronavirus and, you know, interfacing at the Capitol itself. But have you had a chance to meet them or talk to them? Do you feel you know some of them? Yeah, well, we, we did have um, a, a partial orientation. We haven't done everything we need to do to, to, to 
to get ready to take office. But we, we did some of the administrative stuff uh, in an orientation day the, the week of the election. Um, and I met most of the new incoming reps then. Um, and I, I have gotten to know all of the Republicans uh, in you know in various ways, either bumping into them over the course of the last year or in electronic meetings and things like that. So I know my own side of the caucus pretty well, um, and I know some of the, uh, the folks in the minority, uh, but not as well as we probably would already know each other in a, in a more normal year and not as well as I hope we get to know one another soon. Now, you work for Senator Mike Shirky, the Senate Majority Leader, as you just said, um, and as you know, he's had a different outlook and approach to how the state should have handled the challenge of the coronavirus this year from the governor, who has taken a very different approach. What is your feeling about how the legislature is done? We don't have any more time to talk about it, but just very briefly. Well, the the, the quickest thing I'd say is that where I think Senator Shirky and I definitely agree, we may not agree on everything here, Bill, but where we definitely agree is that our governor forgot about the principle of separation of powers, and regardless of what the best policy response would have been, ignoring the elected representatives of the people as long as she did created a, a, a real series of problems that we're still digging out of and uh, and left us kind of hanging over a cliff when the Supreme Court correctly decided that she had exceeded her authority and uh, and so definitely would have done things differently if I had been governor. Well, listen, I wish we could talk about this more. There's so much more to talk about. We'd love to have you back sometime in the future after you take your seat. But I want to thank you very much, Andrew Fink, the representative-elect in the 58th State House District, Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Thank you, representative-elect Fink. Thank you, Bill. Enjoy the weekend. See ya. We'll be back in a minute for the final This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have Representative Thomas Albert, who is a Republican of Lowell, representing the 86th House District, which I believe is all or part of the cities of Belding, Ionia, and Lowell, and... 12 townships in Kent and Ionia County. Is that correct, Representative Thomas Albert? That is correct, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, you have got a huge job looming in front of you. You're going to be chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the House, and boy, do you have a lot of challenges. How do you look at things right now? Well, I think the main word is uncertainty, Bill. Um, you know, generally, what I've experienced, I think what we've seen in the state of Michigan up until this year, so the previous decade, basically, what we've we've had is long-term uncertainty. You know, I think we've had a long, long, lot of long-term unsustainability in a lot of our finances. And uh, much of that stuff can be ignored. It really can until, of course, it all comes to fruition. But uh, what we have now is a situation where all these lockdown measures, uh, all of these um, job losses and uh, businesses that have been hurt, uh, it's just creating all sorts of unsustainability for next year. Uh, you know, Largely, the budget this year was propped up by just the monumental amount of federal funding that was poured into the state of Michigan. And that was through the extra $600 in the, in the UIA for unemployment claims. That was through direct uh, CARES Act dollars that went into our communities, our local governments. Um, so, you know, is there going to be any f- federal funding next year? You know, we don't know. You know, are, you know is, is Biden even going to win? It looks likely, but, you know, still that's, there's still uncertainty there to a certain degree. So is he going to come in and bring in all sorts of, anti-growth policies that's going to decimate our businesses even further. I mean, we just 
really don't know how next year is going to go. Well, that's probably why the governor has sounded so desperate in her pleas to the Trump administration and Congress to get a new uh, coronavirus relief package passed, which has not happened, uh, in addition to the help you got last spring and summer that you just pointed out, right? I mean, if you don't get this kind of help from the federal government, could you be looking at some mammoth deficit in, let's say, fiscal year 2022? Uh, governor seems to think it might be as big as a billion dollars. Again, it's an uncertain, but uh, as you say, we can't even be sure what the next administration at the federal level might do, depending on who it is and who's in place and what their policies are. Yeah, I think a good place to start would be stop having policies here in the state of Michigan that are that are hurting people. You know, why why are, is a movie theater closed but in the parking lot right next to it, Home Depot is open? Uh, why are all of our wait staff now in line in the UIA trying to figure out if they can make their mortgage payments again? I mean, it's just none of these policies have any scientific uh, data to show that they're actually effective. If you look at, if you take a list of states with the number of cases um, per capita and you compare them by the severeness of their lockdown measures, the theory would go those with stronger lockdown measures would have a lower number of cases per capita. But the evidence shows that is not the case. So, in effect, what we're doing is we're hurting all of our small business owners, all of our, our you know, hardworking Michiganders that are working in waitstaff or hospitality. I don't know why the hospitality industry is this large casualty of COVID-19. Uh, if, if you're older or vulnerable, stay home. Take precautions. If you're younger, like me, uh, or, or many people under 40 years old, uh, you know, be smart, but it's pretty clear the, the, uh, the risk of COVID-19 just isn't that great. So it, there's just a lot of casualties that are, are just being done politically, and I think it's highly unfortunate, and it's going to have some pretty severe consequences next year. Now, Representative Albert, I hear you saying that, you know, much of our fiscal difficulties here in Michigan is self-induced self-created. I mean, if we are shutting down businesses, stopping the flow of tax revenue from the success of those businesses, that means we've got less money in the public till, in the treasury. Uh, Money doesn't grow on trees. You can't uh, operate a government expecting money uh, to be produced by your private citizenry if you make it impossible for them to do business, right? And yet that's what we've been doing. Yeah, and, you know, one thing I'll give credit to the federal government, although they have horrible fiscal policies, at least they can print their own money. <laughs> we don't have that luxury here in the state of Michigan. We are bound by the revenue that comes in, and we have to have a balanced budget by September 30th of next year. So we basically have a couple of options here. We can have policies like, you know, it, it cracks me up, right across the border in Indiana, they have a much better COVID response. Basically, they, they have like five metrics per, broken down by county, uh, number of positive cases uh, as a percent uh, over a certain number of day period, uh, hospitalization rate, number of new cases. Uh, there's several, several metrics. I can't remember all off the top of my head. And if you cross over those thresholds, then the state will work with a local public health department to put in policies that can be effective for that local area. We have such a much more punitive and draconian response here in the state of Michigan, and they're doing much better than we are. And I don't know why we can't just look around us and see who's doing it better and follow their their procedures and their you know what what they're doing. Representative Albert, 
talking about that, uh, the Supreme Court, as everybody knows, a couple of months ago came down with an order of decision on a law case saying the governor had acted beyond her constitutional authority in promulgating these executive orders, these shutdown orders. Uh, And yet the governor basically, as a result of this Supreme Court decision, sounds to me like she's just done an end run and she's gotten her public uh, Department of Health and Human Services to pretty much try to promulgate the same thing uh, without having it come in the form of an executive order from her. And it's almost like she's acting like nothing has really changed. I'm going to keep pushing forward doing this. Uh, is that the way you and the legislature are looking at it now, or am I missing something here? Hey, that's the way I look at it, Bill. Um I'll put it this way. The, the 1945 law and the way the governor was using it, she was used. I'll give her this. She was using it in a way as the way that law was written permitted. However, here was the catch. That law was wildly unconstitutional. I called it in, in March. I said that her, her lockdown measures that she was doing then was unconstitutional. Just from a, 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 you know, one from a standpoint of separation of powers, but also from, a, from an individual liberty standpoint. The government does not have the ability to lock down churches. The government does not have the ability to mandate how many people you can have in your house for Thanksgiving. That is crazy. Uh, so what we're seeing here is, yes, she says that she has all the same authorities that she had before that decision. Here's the problem. Here's the problem, though. There is much less wiggle room and legal authority in this DHHS uh, Public Health Act uh, for these epidemic orders, much less legal ground for her to be standing on than she had before. So uh, I'm very. I just wish you'd work with the legislature. Just work with us. We'll work with you. We want a, a smart response to COVID as well. We want there to be, you know, a, there's many services that we need to provide as a state. We have to provide a, a free education for our next generation. If we gut our state revenues, we're not going to be able to provide that to a level that is sufficient. I'm very concerned that these policies are going to have very, very, very long-term effects. I mean, if you look at the city of Grand Rapids, the Grand Rapids Public Schools hasn't had in-public education since March. They are going to be leaps, those kids are going to be leaps and bounds, maybe even permanently behind other kids of, of their peer group. This is a travesty. Yeah, your colleague, Senator Ed McBroom, over in the Senate, uh, former state representative, uh, was asked, well, shouldn't the legislature come up with its own plan and, and present it to the governor? And McBroom said, no, I don't think we necessarily have to do that. We just want to be consulted. We want to sit down uh, with the governor. We want to see the data that she is using to back up her orders. And, you know, we want to comment. The governor seems to take that as uh, an intrusion uh, or nitpicking by the legislature or troublemaking. And she keeps accusing the legislature of not being serious. I mean, is there any way to bridge the gap between these two perspectives? I guess I'll put it this way. The way it seems to me, the left basically says, unless you lock down, you're not taking it serious, so I'm going to do it my way. I don't think lockdowns, one, I don't think that there's any data to prove that they're effective. If anybody has any, I'd love to see it, because uh, I've looked around, uh, you know, I, before working here as an analyst, I love looking at data. I can't find it. If someone can provide the data to show that lockdowns actually are effective, please send it to my office. Uh, but the other thing, so it's like, if we don't do what they want, then we don't care about people. So that's, that's the narrative we're up against, Bill. Yeah. And that's just, 
It's totally not fair, and it's not right. And people need to, people need to wake up. I mean, look around you. I mean, just because you might have a government job where you're going to get paid if you stay home no matter what, uh, if somebody owns a small business and that's the business they use to put a roof over their head and feed their kids, and the government says you're not essential, you need to shut down, that's not fair. That's not fair to them. I agree. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. Uh, Listen, we're out of time. I'd love to keep talking about this. This is going to be a debate that lasts longer. But Representative Thomas Albert, thank you so much. From Lowell, a Republican representing the 86th South District, Thomas Albert with a big job, Chairman of Appropriations in the House. Thank you, Representative Albert. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back next week. 